temptation is always everywhere. It's always there. You know, nobody is uh, is more clever than a, an alcoholic or an alcoholic or an addict who needs a fix. We'll fucking do anything. You just have to know, you know, like um, I can't breathe underwater. I can't fly through the air like a bird. I can't drink. I can't do them. You know, set, the breathing underwater thing that would be cool. That one I would need to work on. But you just got to get it right in your head that, you know, clarity, just no matter what happens today, nothing in the world can make me drink. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now here's your host, Oh. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of TSP, the Share Podcast, and today we have Mishka Shabali joining us on the show. Now, just as a disclaimer for some of you hardcore 12-steppers, Mishka is not part of any traditional 12-step recovery program. He's actually not part of any recovery program. Uh, He got sober seven years ago when his alcoholism and opiate abuse almost killed him. So his story is of a very non-traditional way of finding sobriety, but it's such an amazing and interesting story. Mishka has written several Kindle singles for Amazon, which are bestsellers. One of his most famous singles is The Long Run, his mini memoir detailing his transformation from alcoholic drug abuser to sober ultra runner, and is one of his best-selling Kindle singles to date. But today's interview focuses on his book, I Swear I'll Make It Up To You, which is a gripping memoir starting from his childhood all the way up until he finds sobriety. So again, for those of you who have issues with non-traditional forms of 12-step recovery, this may not be the one for you. But for those of you that enjoy a really good story and a really good conversation, Mishka and I had an amazing time just talking about life, sobriety, and living life on life's terms. So let's dive into Mishka's story, but first, a little Share Podcast news. Today's episode of the Share Podcast is brought to you by Addiction Unscripted. AddictionUnscripted.com is one of the leading online publishers of addiction recovery content. They publish relevant, timely, high-quality stories on a daily basis, covering everything from news and opinion segments to personal narratives from those affected by addiction. But that's not even the best part. Addiction Unscripted is a publication made up of nearly all user-generated content. What that means is that Addiction Unscripted is more than a publication. It's a community of people touched by addiction and a major platform that allows people to write or share on the subject of addiction or recovery while reaching the over 250,000 people who visit their site every month. Addiction Unscripted founder Matt Mendoza says, Our goal is to normalize the stories of brokenness that derive from addiction and to help match the stories that people need to tell with the people who need to hear them. Addiction Unscripted is also currently running their first ever Voices and Recovery Challenge and invites you to participate. There are two $500 prizes at stake, so if you are a voice in recovery and you want the chance to win $500, visit addictionunscripted.com for more information on the Voices in Recovery Challenge. Make sure to submit your story today. Okay, guys, first of all, thanks so much for everyone who has helped support the Share Podcast. And for those of you listening who would like to know how you can help support the Share Podcast, let me give you a couple of ideas. 
first of all, the most important one, which is absolutely free, is to leave a rating and review on iTunes. iTunes single-handedly is one of the most powerful ways for people to find the Share Podcast. So to make it easy for you guys, what I've done is I've put buttons on the website, www.thesharepodcast.com. Go there on the right-hand side. The very first button reads, subscribe on iTunes. Click on that button. It's going to send you directly to the iTunes podcast app. And from there, you'll click subscribe and then go to the section that says rate and review. And please leave us a five-star rating. There's no question about it. iTunes is one of the best ways for our listeners to find the Share Podcast, especially when they're searching for it on Google. If you don't have an iPhone, then go to Stitcher Radio. It's the banner right underneath the subscribe on iTunes. Click on that and do the exact same thing. Subscribe and then leave a five-star rating and review. There's no question about it. This is the best way for you to show your support. I also want to thank all the listeners who have been clicking on the Amazon banner ad. Folks, for those of you wondering what's another fantastic way to support the show is by clicking on that banner before you shop on Amazon. You're going to shop on Amazon anyway. It's not going to cost you one penny more, and it kicks back some commission to the Share Podcast. We've already seen a dramatic increase in commission since we added the banner ad. So thanks again, guys. It's helping so much. And as far as being of service, you can also go to the website and click on the join the Facebook private group banner. It'll take you right to the Facebook private group where you can request to be added and do some service. There's newcomers in there that are posting daily, old timers sharing experience, strength, and hope. It's an absolutely beautiful way to contribute to your own recovery as well as to those in the community. So plug yourself in, get into that private Facebook group. It's absolutely thriving. And again, it's a wonderful way for everyone to be of service. And of course, I want to give a big thank you to all of the listeners who have continued to give donations every month. Thank you guys so much for your generous donations. And for those of you that would like to contribute and help grow and support the Share Podcast financially, you can go to the website, click on the Donate with PayPal button, and it'll take you to the page where you can make your donation. And finally, I want to give credit to the Share Podcast team that is instrumental in producing the Share Podcast. Zinzi Gugu and Evelyn E., who handle the audio editing for each podcast episode. Omar Hernandez, that does all the social media cover art. And Krista Wojo, who handles all of our social media marketing. Without this amazing team, there's no way I could have continued to produce the podcast every week. Thank you, guys. I couldn't do this without you. And finally, would you like to receive the most popular AA daily devotions free in one distribution? Transitions Daily delivers daily devotions from the 24 hours a day, AA thought for the day, daily reflections, big book quote, just for today, as Bill sees it, plus more. You can get our distribution daily via email, private Facebook group, or Twitter. Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends in meetings and with sponsees in recovery. Now back to the show. Hey, Mishka, thanks for joining us. What's up, O? How are you? I am feeling fantastic, brother. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm scraping by here. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Let's do this, man.
All right, folks, today we have Mishka Shabali joining us on the Share Podcast, the author of I Swear I'll Make It Up to You, A Life on the Low Road. And a little background, I heard Mishka's interview on the Rich Roll Podcast, and his relationship with his dad literally brought me to tears. So it's really an honor, and I'm super excited to have you on the show, Mishka. Thank you. Thank you. I'm pumped, man. I'm pumped. All right, so let's dive right in, buddy. Okay, so first... Let's talk about where what is going on today. You know, I mean, it took us. Uh, I know we had to schedule this the, this interview kind of early because you're going to be going to Yale, you're going to be teaching, and you're, you know, going on the road with your book. So, so tell us about like right now what's going on in your life. Um, I'm currently on the road. Uh, you know, mid tour. I guess we're about ten days deep, and we're in uh, Houston, and there were uh, you know tornadoes and flooding uh, last night and today. So fortunately, today is a day off. So we had the hotel for two days. And uh, yeah, I drove back from the show last night and there were tornado warnings. And then, you know, wake up today and there's all this crazy footage of people swimming from their cars and whatnot. And, uh, you know, our room here at the uh, Ramada flooded. Oh, um, no. Fuck. Yeah. It, you know, but but what are you going to do? There are so many people who are you know, we're right by the airports. There's so many people who are just hanging out in the lobby with like no place to stay, no oh, place to sleep. Um, so I just, you know, this, uh, this whole trip has been, uh, just been dodging disaster at every turn. It's been great. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're going to be, so you're on tour right now. Is it, is this for your singing gig? Is this for the book? What are you on tour for? Uh, I booked, um, you know, I reached out to my publisher and I was like, all right, I'm going to do this big, crazy tour. I'll book, um, you know, I'll book shows later at night. You guys book readings. Very few readings ended up coming through. So it's whatever, 38 shows in 40 days um, across the country. We're uh, left from, you know, I was up in uh, Seattle and Portland, then uh, left from L.A. We're in Houston right now. We're going our way across to Florida, up to Minneapolis, Detroit, Chicago, across to New York. I have a day off, fly to the U.K. for two weeks, two days off, then go to teach at Yale. Dude, wow, that's like wild. And what are you teaching over at Yale? Uh, I'm teaching writing. I'm, uh, you know, I'm trying to teach people how to do what I do, which is to uh, find a way to translate the bullshit from your life into a, uh, a clear, compelling, uh, concise narrative for, for consumption by the world at large. Well, I'll tell you, folks, uh, if you get a chance, make sure to pick this one up. I swear I'll make it up to you. Is amazing. I got it on audiobooks, so I got a chance to listen to it. And my ADD kept kicking in, so I'd have to keep rewinding it. Okay, because every once in a while you'd say something and I would just go into my life. I mean, literally, I would just go into that point in my life that was just as you know dysfunctional and wretched. And then I actually thought the same thing. I was like, God, you know, I mean, just the way that you write your life out, you know, like there's so much of my life that I could put on paper. And there's probably so many of us that have a book, that have a Hollywood movie. I always say, you know, we all have a Hollywood blockbuster inside of us, you know, especially after we, you know, fight and claw our way through addiction. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's a huge compliment that you've given me that, like, that relating my experience would sort of make your, you know, would speak to you with enough strength that it makes you expand your own experience in your head. So, um, so thanks for that. 
I, um, this is kind of a weird diva writer thing to say, but, um, it's funny, you know, because people, you know, at, you know, at shows we're playing in whatever dive bars or punk houses or living room shows and stuff like that. And there's always somebody there who, you know, who doesn't know uh, where I'm from or my story or, you know, what I've been up to. And they sort of walk over to the merch table and pick up the book and they're like, oh, yeah, a book, huh? I always thought I had a book in me. <laughs> yeah. You know what else you have in you? A spinal cord. It will, it will be about as hard to get that book out of you as it is to get the spinal cord out. It is, it's, it is a grim process to sort of do that, to do the archaeology and sort of like go through. Okay, when I was 22, when I was basically subhuman, what was I doing that summer? Let me relive those mistakes. It's, uh, it ain't fun, man. <laughs> no, no, I, I can't. And, and, and again, it was just tidbits. I would get flashbacks and, and I don't remember a lot of my childhood. Um, but it was just like little flashbacks that I would get as I was going through the book. And, you know, the rhetoric is so strong. I mean, just the way that you describe things is, is beautifully done. I was super impressed. Uh, I have heard a few, uh, memoirs. And, uh, like we were talking before the interview, uh, Rich Roll, you know, Finding Ultra was one of the ones that I listened to and also Sarah Heppola's, uh, Blackout. And yeah. both of those, I mean, Sarah goes into some horrific details about her experiences, you know, waking up from blackouts or right in the middle of a blackout, right? Uh, yeah. so there's something that's been going on and I don't know if it's just, if it's, it's recent, but, but people are not afraid to be vulnerable these days. I mean, to, to really talk about those minute details that only happen between you and, you know, maybe one other person and then that's it. And you definitely don't talk about it. Um, and, and so I think that today it's becoming a, a lot easier, a lot more accessible to, to really dig down deep. And talk about these moments, you know, I mean, there was a lot of very, very personal things that you discussed uh, in your book that we'll touch in a little bit later. But but do you think that's do you feel that that's the case in, in today's generation? Yeah, I mean, I, there's, uh, you know, I feel like there's a whole like sort of lexicon that's risen up around that, you know, of like um, oversharing or TMI. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm conflicted about that. I, I, I'm not quite sure where I stand on that. You know, on the one hand, um, my Facebook is just a ton of random strangers who have added me. I probably have like war criminals on there and I don't know about it. But, you know, so I, I'll, I'll see people, you know, I don't know on my feed who are sort of like soliciting, you know, prayers or positive vibes for somebody or, you know, or, or sort of like griping about, you know, someone else in a public forum. And I'm sort of like, uh, you know, uh, just keep that to yourself. It's not serving any purpose. But then, you know, I share pictures or, you know, things that come to me on the road or, you know, and, and like, you know, I talk, you know, obviously, you know, my songs are pretty gritty and my writing is pretty gritty. As a writer, I think I recognized early on that I wanted to know the entire length and breadth of human existence. If you look at, you know, a Hollywood, a Hollywood blockbuster like uh, Jason Bourne or something like that, there's very few sort of like rough mornings where somebody's sprinting for the bathroom to throw up and there's never, you know, a, even an awkward moment where they go in for a kiss and somebody gets the other person's nose or, you know what I mean? Like, and that's, that's part of, that's a huge part of human experience. I, you know, I feel like our lives are much more of that stuff 
um, the awkward stuff than it is the, the sexy action movie shit. You know, telling, telling those stories that you're ashamed of and, and, and sharing those, uh, sharing those secrets with, with others, either in, uh, you know, either in public or in private. I mean, it really like sets you free, man. If there was going to be, you know, some, uh, vengeful, uh, investigative reporter, you know, who tried to do an expose on me, they wouldn't find anything because I've already embarrassed myself <laughs> worse than anyone else ever could, you know? So I'm sort of, it's like, I'm safe now. Oh man, absolutely. So, um, you know, I want to get into your story, but I definitely want to find out a little bit more about the after, like when you got sober. So how much clean time do you have right now? And, and what's your anniversary date? Uh, well, I'm creeping up on seven years. I tried not to really track my anniversary date. It's, uh, because what I said to myself early on in sobriety when I decided that I was actually going to do this was I said, I'm not going to count days because in my mind that just, you know, reminded me of like an old cartoon where there's some guy locked up in prison and he's like, you know, making a mark on the wall for each day. <laughs> and, uh, my thought was, I want my life to be so rich and so exciting and, and to be so engaged in it that I'm not like white knuckling it through day after day, but instead that I'm engaged in a meaningful and even, you know, fun life, uh, to the point where I'm like, Oh shit, another year has passed. Wow. I can't believe it. Which is a long way of saying, I think it's the end of May sometime, May 26th, May 29th. I have it marked on my calendar somewhere, but it'll, yeah, it'll be seven years then. Okay. Well, we can say May 26th. My anniversary is actually May 26th as well. Oh yeah. <laughs> May 26th. Wow. Yeah. I'll celebrate 13 years this May 26th. So. There we go. Congratulations. We're brothers. I'll be, uh, I'll be raising a tall glass of bubbly water in your honor. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> All right. So then let's talk about those seven years, how you've managed to stay sober. What's your routine look like for, for maintaining your sobriety? I know that a lot of people in recovery have a, have a program that they adhere to or they have routines or rituals or you know, sort of th things they do every single day. I don't, you know, very early on in my sobriety, I recognized that I didn't know how to live as a human being. And I didn't, I didn't, and that, sorry, there's a plane going over right now. <laughs> and that, uh, if you think about it, stopping drinking is the easiest thing in the world. You just put down the bottle and you never pick it up again right? That's a discrete task. The challenging thing is what do you put in your life in its place? What do you put in there so that alcohol doesn't come creeping back in? I drank, you know, pretty hard from, uh, you know, 14 or 15 to 32. You know, there were times in there where I would have, I would quit for a month or a couple of months or one time I even quit for a year, you know, so I knew how to quit. I, you just like stop and lock yourself up and, drink lots of water and do everything you can to sort of minimize the withdrawal. But I didn't know how to live as a human being. So when I was too angry or too depressed or just bored or didn't know what to do with my time or do with my day, I would just go out running. That was a very therapeutic tool that I used early on to, uh, to get my head together. And then I started going to, uh, to therapy, which I, I really didn't engage until, uh, you know, until I was probably like at least a year, uh, sober. 
and then I, you know, I found the right, the right counselor. And then we sort of like really dug into big issues. But now I, you know, I try and exercise as frequently as possible because I've never gone on a run and, and regretted it, you know, and that can be running or yoga or boxing or, uh, you know, today I went into the, the like flooded gym here and cranked out a <laughs> miserable half hour on the bike and then lifted some weights um, just to sort of, you know, clear my head. I, I try hard to do something like for myself, something that I enjoy each day that often comes in the form of like just playing with a dog for a minute, you know, <laughs> just sort of like really uh, my sister has three big dogs, which I love to death. And one day I was like, all right, Harley, I'm just going to pat you until you're sick of it. I'm going to, I'm going to pat you. I'm going to give you all the attention you need. I'm just going to pat you until you've had enough and you wander away. And it never happened. No, I, like, never. I was like, dude, I got to tap out. My arms are burning. Like I can't do this anymore. You know? And I'm like, geez. So, you know, I, I've never, I didn't go to rehab. I've never gone to meetings. Um, that's never been a part of, part of my program. And, it, you know, and in fact, I didn't want to leave the cult of alcohol to join the cult of recovery. I wanted to reintegrate myself with the rest of humanity and get to a point where alcohol was just irrelevant. I know that I'll never get there, you know, with, you know, nearly seven years on it. Now I understand that that's, you know, for an alcoholic and an addict, that that's, not possible and that the, you know there there will it will always be pushing on me and I will always be pushing back but um I knew that I didn't want it to be my entire identity I'm an alcoholic and I also I'm a hack guitar player and I'm a songwriter and I'm a writer and I'm a runner and you know I do a lot of things well and I want to um, speak to that because in my in my group I have a uh, a private group just for recovering addicts and alcoholics and so it's a safe haven and there's quite a few of them that don't want to go to meetings and don't want to be associated with that sort of a program or they don't want to be like you're saying i don't want my my label to be a recovery guy so to speak so let's speak to that okay because something that you mentioned right as as you started as we started talking about this topic was that you simply have to replace it with something else. So for you, in the beginning was running and then you went to therapy. Is there something more? Is it just that you created this, this new lifestyle uh, to replace the old one? Well, let me, um, let me tweak what you said there a little bit because when you, when you listen back, you'll hear that I said, first, you stop drinking. That's the big thing. You break the spell. And then there's space in your life and you have to fill it with something. There's sort of a pervasive thing in uh, well-intentioned interviews and pieces that people have written about me where they say, oh, you know, he replaced his alcohol addiction with a running addiction. That's false. That's untrue. That's absolutely wrong. What I did was I removed alcohol from my life. That's step one. Then step two, when alcohol was gone, I started putting other things in it. And what I put in it was writing running, reconnecting with my family, improving my friendships, you know, trying to, trying to be a success, trying, you know, like just trying, trying to run, trying to become more flexible, trying to become stronger, trying to be, be more patient, trying to try, just trying every day, you know? Um, so, uh, 
Now I've forgotten your question. <laughs> <laughs> the question was, what did you replace it with? And you just answered it. But you also clarified where I came from in the beginning, where it wasn't so much about me. It wasn't so much about you replacing, you know, alcohol for something. Okay. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because I mean, and that's the thing. That's one of the things that I, I really sort of want to like, you know, search and destroy because I I'm, I was not replacing one addiction with another because I've done that. And I know what that's like. I switched from drinking to doing drugs. And I was like, Oh, I don't drink anymore. because I'm just doing all these hardcore opiates. <laughs> and, uh, uh, no, that's not an upgrade. And that's not an acceptable, uh, you know, means of quitting drinking. I had to break the spell. And I did. And I, you know, and I continue to do it every day. And actually, well, let's talk about that. I'm a musician. So I, I did like 100 shows on the road last year. I'll do at least that again this year. Those shows happen in bars. People drink. Sometimes people dr send drinks up to the stage. You know, when I was two months sober, I was working in a bar. I was bartending. I was managing. I was, you know, throwing people out there. You know, there was all kinds of temptation and there was all kinds of uh, instances where I could fuck up. So what I had to do was just get right in my head with what I do and what I don't do and what uh, what alcohol means for me and what life I want to live and what kind of decisions I want to make, and, you know, and all that stuff. And just every time that, you know, I have some I, I have some incredibly good memories of drinking. We all do. You know, I mean, I remember being on tour with my my buddy, Mike, who is now also sober. You know, we drove like 10 hours through the Texas heat and got to some crappy little hotel. And, you know, we got these 40s and they were just ice cold, like hurt your hand and get, you know, got in a hot shower and like drinking that cold beer. And it was so amazing. You know, every time I feel lust for to sort of recreate one of those scenes, I just call to mind one of the hangovers that I had yeah. or like the cops waking me up in the morning, you know, or like waking up in a bed that looked like a murdered hooker because there was so much blood, <laughs> you know, and just shit like that. You know, it's like, okay, let's not deceive ourselves. It's real easy to remember that, like that sexy first drink that, you know, looks like it's coming out of a, you know, a fucking beer commercial or right, something like that. Right. It looks like, you know, a frosted jewel, you know, pulled out of this, this chasm of ice, you know, that's not what it's like, man. Remember the end. Yeah. Re remember how it ends. It always ends in shame and guilt and like, uh, cheap Chinese food and uh, <laughs> questionable company and bad decisions and, and just so much regret. You know, I uh, I woke up the other morning, like didn't get a good night's sleep and, you know, sort of erratic sleep for five hours. I woke up and I was like, man, I don't need hangovers for mornings to suck. Like imagine if I was drinking how how terrible this would be, you know, and that was a good reminder you just have, you just got to get right in your head, man. And I, you know, for some people that happens with AA or NA or the 12 steps, or they create their own program or they have a structure, but really what it is, is, uh, clarity is the anti-drug. You got to know what's coming when you take that first sexy drink. Yeah. And then you, you, know? you play the tape through and, and, and you come to the realization of, of where this is going to end. And, you know, you're able to, to talk yourself out of it because, you know, the endings were so bad for so many times. And yeah, while I was going through your book, there was tons of, I'm going to quit for a while. And then you'd go back in and you'd go back even stronger and even harder. So yep. the hangovers were even worse. But do you have a, a support group that you lean on that also like your buddy, Mike, who's, who's also sober? Are those the kind of people that you typically hang around with? I, um, 
No, I mean, most of my friends, uh, most of my friends still drink, you know, most of my friends don't, this, this was a, this was a hard epiphany for me to, uh, <laughs> for me to realize, but we're told that like, oh, when you quit drinking, you're going to lose all these friends. Cause there are all these people around you who are just, they're, you know, they're just a bad influence on you. And they're sort of like, you know, sending you down the wrong road. And like, when you stop drinking, those people will, you'll have to break up with them or they'll just fall away from your life. I lost an incredibly few, you know, an incredibly small amount of friends. And it made me realize that I was that guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah, the guy for yeah. them who are like, no, fuck beer. We're getting shots or fuck shots. We're getting some blow or like we're getting more blow or, you know, we're, we're just going for it. Right. Um, so that was, I was like, oh shit. I, I was that guy. Yeah. <laughs> there was nobody else like forcing me to do it. I was forcing other people <laughs> to do it. Um, I don't really have a sober group of friends or a specific network. I have, I do, I'm fortunate to have a lot of friends, you know, all of whom are supportive in different ways, some of whom are sober, some of whom aren't. But, you know, but also like I, uh, you know, I left New York last year. My building got sold. And so I had to move out. And I was like, all right, I'm just leaving New York. And then I've mostly been on tour then. You know, I've been, uh, Jesus, in the last year, I was, I've been in uh, England, Ireland, uh, Kenya. I've done, you know, 100 shows around the country. I was in Canada. I was in Mexico. Um, you know, I have a little camper in my sister's backyard in California where I stay when I'm not staying somewhere else. But when this tour ends, I'll be on the East Coast and then just sort of fishing around for a place to stay. So I, I don't have... Uh, the Thursday night meeting or even, uh, you know, regular Friday dinner with a sober friend or, you know, a sober group of friends. You know, I always have people I can reach out to. And I think, too, that I have sort of an unfair advantage over a lot of other people in recovery is that very early on, I documented my recovery in print uh, in the form of the long run in uh, 2011. And then that went fucking everywhere. A long run? Uh, it's called the long run. It was my biggest Kindle single. It was, uh, it, it was published, uh, it just published digitally by Amazon, but there have been like 90,000 copies sold. It's been translated into a bunch of different languages, you know, so I have, you know, from that and then like doing stuff with rich and, uh, you know, I've written for the fix.com and I've just been sort of, uh, loud and proud about my sobriety. And then everywhere I go, uh, I have people supporting me. There's this guy, Ed in Austin, who comes to every one of my shows when, it, you know, when I'm in town, he's, you know, and he sort of introduced himself. He's, oh, I'm on the same team. Oh, awesome. So we, you know, we talk every time I'm in town and almost every show, there's somebody there who's, uh, you know, who's in recovery. So I sort of made the world my support group. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things you did was just basically just you stated, you know, I, I'm done with this. I'm done with this lifestyle. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a drug addict. I can't do this anymore. Like ever. Like not even one. And yeah. so the long run was your, how long was that for it? Was that your first year? Uh, I, um, see, I wrote it in late 2011. So I'd been sober for like two and a half years. Okay. All right. Okay. So, so, so this is your, your documentary in, you know, about, about recovery or about, you know, sobriety. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's there's things that you have used to hold yourself accountable. I mean, and that's basically what I'm trying to get at as well. You know, I, I want people to anchor themselves to possibilities. 
you know, what are, what are my options or what are my possibilities? And social media has become a mecca for, for discussing sobriety, uh, for discussing anything, really. I mean, you can be, mm-hmm. you can be open to vulnerability about your life in any way, shape or form, whether it's a, f- a food issue or, or whether it's a drug addiction or whatever the case may be. You know, you have a forum to discuss it and also hold yourself accountable by your own media, by what you've put out there. Now, do you also have like a, a meditative practice or a spiritual practice or philosophy that you follow? I want to get into that, but uh, let me back up to the thing, sort of hair splitting between social media and writing. Writing for me has been, it has been the, the greatest means by which I hold myself accountable. And I would encourage everybody and anybody to write. You don't need to publish it just to be able to have that dialogue with yourself, to write words on the page, leave and then come back and read them again and say, yeah, that's how I feel. Or no, that's I didn't get it right at all. More than anything else, that's been writing has been what saved. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, that as helpful as social media has been in, you know, places like Iran and Turkey, you know, with you know, sort of like uh, revolutions and underground movements, and then the, you know the the mounting acceptance of uh, you know of trans people. There have been very meaningful support groups, but also my experience of social media is not that it's representative of real life, but that it's the opposite of real life. And I've had so many hurtful, you know, I've had so many people troll me or comment. You know, if you read the comments on one of my pieces, you would think that like that everybody in the world hates me. And that that's not true. It's just that the way people work is when we read something and we like it, we're like, oh, that was good. And we sort of move on. And if we read something, we hate it. Then we post a comment. Yeah. Um, so I think for someone in early recovery, that could be a real, real quagmire. And I wouldn't want, you know, and there have been there have definitely been times where I was like, I got to just walk away from this and, you know, and not engage. So social media has been important for me to to reach people and definitely, to, you know, to support uh, the tours and what I'm publishing and stuff like that. But it's important for us all to remember that, you know, not only is it not real life, it's kind of the opposite of real life. I, f- I hear you. I hear you. I, I mean, I, I totally get it. Um, and, and there's so much of it that, like you say, there is there is a face to it. And in many cases, the, it's a very superficial element. Okay. And if, and if it, if you touch a nerve, then you could get a backlash from people that, that don't know how to deal with stuff that's not on the surface. They don't know how to deal with yeah. things that are, that are, uh, that are intimate and that are, um, you know, heartfelt. I, I do agree on that fact. I mean, there's pros and cons to anything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you just, you know, with anything else, you just got to be selective. Back to your question about, uh, spirituality or meditative practice or anything like that. In my life, I've been incredibly resistant to uh, meditation. My mom was always like, oh, you know, just put a smile on your face and and uh, you'll be happier. And I was like, oh, mom, that's bullshit. You know, and then I looked it up and, well, science backs her up. <laughs> it's true <laughs> that if you actually smile, you will actually feel happier. And that's been tested in laboratories by people in white coats. You know, I mean. And then meditation, I was like, oh, that's just sort of hippie frou-frou shit. And then I, so I looked it up and I was like, okay, yeah, again, science says that meditation works. So I, you know, I got to try it and I don't meditate as often as I would like to. Um, I do try and do it 
you know, when I'm stressed out, I found, you know, at one point in my life, I was like, Oh, I'm really stressed out. I need to be meditating every day. And then, uh, my girlfriend dumped me and moved out. And then I was like, Oh, I no longer feel the need to meditate every day. I was just in a bad relationship. <laughs> That's what it was. That just had to end. And now I feel fine. Uh, I, uh, I don't, uh, have anything like a spiritual connection. Uh, with with anything i don't um i don't believe in god or positive vibes or uh, any kind of higher power i'm not atheist because i think that that's a little arrogant to say you know as human beings oh i know there is no god because we don't know and i think that human beings in general would be really well served by confessing how little we actually know but um this, this is a tricky one I don't think that, that the notion of God or, you know, everything happens for a reason. I don't think that's helpful to us. I think what's more helpful is to think we live in a disordered world with no order and no reason. And the only, the only order that exists or reason that exists is, is what we impose on this chaos. And we have the ultimate responsibility. It's entirely up to us. So what kind of world do you want? Do you want a world where we treat each other with respect and kindness, where we help each other? Or do you want the, you know, the world from the Terminator movies where we're all just sort of like in perpetual war with robots? You know, I, uh, and, and the, the, you know, and this, this issue of faith and belief, you know, this is something I sort of butt heads with people, you know, with time and time again, I, I do have a, I do have a, I do have a sense of ethics and right and wrong and uh, but I don't uh, I don't think that anything happens for a reason. I really feel like it's all up to us and feeling comfortable in that belief compels me to be good uh, with greater strength than uh, fear that, oh, maybe there is an afterlife and I'm going to be punished for uh, looking at boobs or, you know, or whatever <laughs> arbitrary thing you know, one religion or another defines as wrong or evil. You know, I mean, I, I just, I feel like it's up to us and I know, you know, I know what kind of world I want. No. And, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer of, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. And it sounds as though you've adopted a code of conduct. And, and I feel that it comes intrinsically in all of us. I think we all have it in us. We, we both have that, the good and evil within us and we just have to make a decision as to which way we want to go. And, uh, you know, when, when I wanted to go bad, I went really bad. Yep. You know, I mean, I, I, and, and there was no hold bar. I figured if I'm going to go this, if I'm going to go this route, then I'm going to, then I'm all in. So yeah, yeah I'm kind of yeah. an all or nothing kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. You know, and, um, you know, this, this is one of the people always say, you know, be a good person, you know, ah, you know, I mean, I think that, at best, people are morally, amb you know, ambiguous, you know, that like every um, Hitler's mom loved him. She thought that he was great, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, and Mother Teresa did some things that are really questionable. All of us, uh, you know, there are no moral absolutes. You know, I mean, uh, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was a philanderer. Um, that doesn't, in my mind, that doesn't diminish the good that he did, but it just, you know, it reminds me that, um, everybody's got some secrets, man. Everybody's mm. done bad things and it, you know, that you, you know, that you have done bad things or things that you 
feel shame or regret for it does not mean that you're also that you're not also capable of doing incredible things. No, it's the human condition, basically. Yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. Listen, uh, um, so so here's something that I'm curious about because I'm a big Rich Roll fan, um, and you've been on his show seven times. So so yeah. <laughs> how is that? How is that? How did that happen? And, and you know, how did that relationship between you and Rich evolve? We just clicked, man. I, um, it's funny, you know, I mean, uh, my relationship with Rich Roll is probably, uh, the best argument I've ever found. <laughs> you know, he and I, uh, there's a lot of stuff that he and I don't agree about, you know, on. And I love disagreeing with him about that stuff, you know, I mean, and, and he likes it too, you know. We, um, it's like a ping pong match, you know, it, it's absolutely a battle, but it's, it's, it's far more entertaining and energy and engaging than for us to just say, yeah, I feel that way too. Yeah. I feel that way too. A, uh, another podcaster who had had rich on his show and, uh, and me connected us. And then rich was like, all right, I'm going to be in New York, you know, um, let's do this. You know, I'll call and I, I read finding ultra, and I made some shitty judgments about him reading that book that he would be some like type A super competitive go 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 kind of guy. And then uh, he sh- he just showed up at my house in Brooklyn one day and he came in. We sat on the floor and just sort of like went really really deep. And uh, you know he walked in a stranger and walked out you know like a, a trusted friend I had just met for the first time. Yeah, and um, I love it. He. Uh, I, you know, so, so many good things have come from Rich and I'm, you know, I'm incredibly grateful for his friendship. I, I, and I don't think that he, you know, he would mind me sharing this too, is, you know, that like, you know, a lot of us are huge fans of his and, you know, we see, we see him and the way that his life is and the way that he is. And we want to be like that. Rich has bad days too. And every once in a while, you know, every once in a while he'll call me when he's having a bad day or when he's like, you know, just in a shit mood or things aren't going his way. It makes me feel better to know that somebody, you know, who a lot of us perceive as superhuman. Yeah. You know, no, he has human weakness too, like we all do. Well, I, you know, I, 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 I want to get him on the show, right? So I, yeah, I sent him an email a couple of months ago. I was like, Rich, I want to get you on the show. He's like, Dude, I'm doing videos, and I'm like swamped. I've got, you know, this year is like crazy for me. You know, uh, he is, and and that's and that is all true. I'm absolutely sure he totally wants to do it. And, you know, if there were another 10 hours in the day, he would have done it already. Um, and also, I know few people who are trying to do more in their lives. He's just, he's, you know, pulled so many different directions right now. No, it's, um, it's, it's, it's wild. It's wild. Anyway, it's just, it's, it's very cool. It's very interesting. This, this podcast world has, has brought me you know, in contact with so many amazing people and, you know, got an opportunity to get, you know, inside the head of, of so many. Um, look, we're on this interview right now that I'm just like totally pumped about. And so as far as your diet goes, you know, are you part of the vegan movement or you still eat steak? Man, I feel like I feel like Mulder on uh, X-Files, you know, where it's like, I want to believe, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I really want to believe that veganism is possible for all of us but um i've tried it a couple of times and listen absolutely everybody should take six weeks and you know take a flying leap at eating vegan because i learned so much from doing it you know one of the things that i learned is that i need to be eating more greens 
and that you know very few of us are eating enough greens enough vegetables man traveling around the country i see so many of my, of my friends every time i see them they're 10 pounds heavier 20 pounds heavier yeah. guys guys in their late 30s dying of heart attacks mm -hmm. you know the the uh the drug that's killing us is not uh is not meth or crack or heroin it's food yeah it's um, true I, I absolutely believe that but also like we're on tour right now and like when you wake up in the morning it's like well okay i can drop like eight to 15 bucks on you know healthy organic fruits and vegetables or the continental breakfast is free <laughs> <laughs> it's i don't and this will not be a newsflash but yo it's fucking hard out here <laughs> if if there's if somebody puts food in front of me i'm gonna eat it yeah you know like if it's if it's a if they if it's like possum fritters that's what i'm gonna eat you know um whatever whatever it is you know so like we had a day off today so star uh uh star went to a grocery store and you know i'm drinking a green juice right now and like we got a bunch of fruits and vegetables and we have, you know, nuts and raisins in the car and stuff like that. But when we show up at the venue and they have like fucking pizza or Twizzlers or whatever crap, that's what we eat. And then when I go home, I, uh, you know, I try really hard to, to eat right. And for me, that's, you know, oatmeal in the morning, you know, a big salad with chicken for lunch and then, uh, you know, like a smoothie and snacks or something for dinner. So, you know, so, so the life of, of the roadie, the guy that's on the road, the, the, the artist, the singer-songwriter that's yeah. moving from town to town. You never know what's coming one day to the next. Listen, routines are important, and it's so important in early sobriety to shore up the decision you've made with whatever it takes, man. Uh, if, uh, if your you know, hardcore, devout belief in Catholicism is what's keeping you sober, then I absolutely support you. I'm in your corner 100%. You know, I will fucking get down on my knees and pray with you. I like I'm fu I'm totally fine. Whatever it takes. But as you move further along the line, you need to know who you're going to be when your routine fails you. And, and it, it can't be that I missed a meeting. I'm going to go drink. I, you know, or I got I got in a car accident. So I'm going to go drink or my mother died. So I'm going to go drink. You need to you need to know sort of you need to sort of make that change in your core and uh being out on the road it's it's tough it's challenging we're sleeping in a different place every night often you don't sleep well you're eating crap food drinking too much coffee not enough coffee you know obviously we're in bars all the time you know there are a couple of chicks who want me to come out to their car and like do fat lines of blow with them the other night you know temptation is always everywhere it's always there you know, nobody is uh, is more clever than a, an alcoholic or an alcoholic or an addict who needs a fix. We'll fucking do anything. You just have to know, you know, like um, I can't breathe underwater. I can't fly through the air like a bird. I can't drink. Yeah, I those love it. Things, That's those not, are things I, like I don't it. do. I just <laughs> I, I can't do them. I love um, it, man. <laughs> you know, come, come, you know, come, uh, you know, set, the breathing underwater thing, that would be cool. That one I would need to work on. <laughs> but you just got to get it right in your head that, you know, clarity, just no matter what happens today, nothing in the world can make me drink. Oh, man. Okay. I got it. I got it. All right. So, Mishka, it's time for me to turn this show over to you, my friend. It's time for you <laughs> to share with us your story. So now I want to hear about the battle you had against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life when you hit rock bottom, 
and then finally your journey into sobriety up until today. So, Mishka, take it away, buddy. All right. Let me, uh, let me swallow a mouthful of juice here. When I was a kid, like 13 or 14, that's when I started drinking. And I'd gotten picked on a lot in school. We moved around a lot. And, you know, that was uh, when I – the first time I got drunk, I was like, oh, this this is who I am. This is who I will be. And I just felt, uh, you know, I finally found, had found my identity. Then uh, when I was 15, I left high school and started a college-level program. Uh, my first semester at school, another student got a semi-automatic assault rifle and shot up the school, uh, shot six people, killed two of them, and, uh, you know, terrified all of us. Um, I stayed up the whole night, and then uh, when I got home the next day on zero sleep, I found out my parents were in a divorce. And then we, uh, we lost the house to the bank, and... I sort of just spent the next 17 years in uh, just this sad tornado of uh, alcohol and cough syrup and cocaine and hating, you know, hating myself. I felt guilty, you know, that I was responsible for my parents' divorce and, uh, you know, and just hating the world at large. You know, I mean, to have uh, to have them take our house away made me hate my dad for leaving and made, made me hate my mom for having me. I hated God, America, money, capitalism, banks, everything. And then uh, when I was 32, I just finally had this epiphany that I was more afraid of my life than I was of my death, that I was okay with dying. But what really scared the shit out of me was living. And, uh, and I love my mother. And I promised her that I would never kill myself. And so I was like, I'm I'm stuck here, stuck in this. What if I made a life that's worth living? And uh, then I just started pushing back and I stopped drinking. I started running. I started trying down, trying to tear down the person I'd been and build a, a human being in his place. You know, and that's a long process and I'm still working on that. But. I found success as a writer. I was able to quit my job in the bar. I haven't had a real job in uh, four years now. Uh, with my pros, with the money that I made from publishing my writing via Amazon, I was able to buy my mother a house, and awesome. uh, that, yeah, that was a pretty cool feeling. Yeah, I can and, only uh, imagine. That's awesome. And now I, uh, I am not perfect. I do not have a perfect life. I'm not a perfect man, but I'm. A lot better than I was and uh, you know there's still chaos and sadness and anger and all that shit in my life but it's a lot more manageable now I have a you know I have a great relationship with my father uh, I didn't talk to him for seven years I have a great relationship with my sister I didn't talk to her for seven years and uh, you know and my sister has four little kids and and they love their weird creepy uncle and I love that and that's your story that's uh, that's it in a nutshell, man. I just I fucking came to my senses one day, finally. <laughs> well, you know, if you don't mind if I do a little probing here. Yeah, yeah, go for it. <laughs> there, there was so much of of your book that that rattled me, um, and it's your story, man. It's 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 your life, and it was it's fucked up. You know what I mean? Like so much of it in the beginning was just it was terrifying. You know, as I was I was as I was going through it with you. And, you know, you say you felt like you blamed yourself for your parents' divorce. What was that all about? Um, I mean, well, it's funny because I, I had so many friends who, uh, you know, from, you know, from divorced parents. 
And I always heard that thing that like, you know, kids blame themselves. And I was like, well, that's stupid. Why would they ever do that? You know, and then it happened to me. And I was like, oh, that's totally me. You know, and I, uh, I was scared of the dark when I was a kid. I mean, hell, I'm still scared of the dark. I'm 39. But um, when I was a kid, you know, the way that it manifested is that, you know, I would wake up from a nightmare in the middle of the night and go and crawl in my parents' bed. And uh, I think I was like 12 before I slept, you know, before I was sort of sleeping in my bed every night. And I was a difficult kid. Um, I was uh, too smart and too sensitive and too big and too loud. And I acted out. And, um, and when, you know, when my dad split, you know, it, it had been clear to me since I was, you know, a very small child that my dad didn't really like me. And then when my dad split, uh, it was sort of obvious to me in my mind that like, oh, well, it's because of me. You know, I... Uh, I was, you know, like had to fucking crawl in their bed every night cause I was weak cause I was a pussy. And then I was, a, uh, you know, he, he had told me several times that I was spoiled and, uh, and, you know, and I, my behavioral, behavioral issues were well documented and I was like, Oh, it's just, it's my fault, you know? And then, uh, I carried that with me for a long time, you know? And and alternating between blaming myself and being like, oh, it's all my fault, and then blaming my father and being like, it's all his fault. And, you know, and neither one of those was correct. Well, later on, you find out that that's the case. As you do the work, you recognize that, you know, we're all human beings having a human experience doing the best we can, yeah. you know. But there was that moment when your dad left and the house was being foreclosed on. And you guys are having these yard sales. Oh, man. So, so, <laughs> yeah. Still yeah. fucks me up. Uh, it fucked me up, man. Cause this is where the, the name of the book comes from. So, yeah. Yeah. So. We, um, so I guess I was 16 by that point and, uh, we were in the process of like liquidating all our belongings, like trying to, uh, trying to pay bills and trying to get rid of shit. Cause it, we knew we were going to lose the house. So we had this sort of like months long, just unending yard sale. It just went on and on and on. And like, our, you know, we were, we lived in New Hampshire, which is the whitest at the time. It was the whitest state in the union. And, uh, I had a Vietnamese foster brother and my little sister's adopted. She's native American. We always got kind of fucking sideways glances from people because half the kids were brown. And, uh, and then they didn't like us because we weren't from there. You know, we weren't, you know, sort of crusty uh, New England blue blood. So then, like, from having lived in this town with these people who condescended to us and then had to have them pick through our belongings and just sort of fucking, like, drive us down to the, oh, you've got it out for a dollar? I'll give you a nickel. Just haggle us down. I just fucking hated everyone. And I hated us. And I hated my parents. And, you know, and it was, and then uh, there was one day when I was out there with my mom and, like, I, you know, sort of bullied her or convinced her to buy me some beer. So we were drinking like warm Budweiser and then it started to rain and we were like, fuck. So we're, you know, we're scrambling to get all the shit in the house before it gets soaked. And then she just, she just broke down. She just collapsed. She'd never done it before and has never done it again, but she just, her knees went and she was just crying so hard. She couldn't hold herself up. And I, I was 16 years old, you know, I had to carry her into the house and sort of like get her up to her bed and try to comfort her and then run back out and try and get all the shit into the garage that I could. And then, uh, I started to cry and then I was like, no, stop, like man up, 
just be a man. You cried enough, and it fucking it hasn't helped. So you got to do something. And and then I and I swore. I said, what whatever it takes, you know, I will I will fucking I will get revenge on my dad, and I will get revenge on the world for doing this to us, and I will make it up to my mom. You know, I will make things right. And uh, that's a lot for a sixteen-year-old to take on, man. man. <laughs> and, you know, and that shit weighed heavily on me over the years because, I mean, I was serious about it. And I took it yeah. very serious that I was going to, like, do right by my mom, you know. And, uh, you know, it took me 20 years, but I did it. <laughs> Dude, it was so, like, I was I was blown away by that, that whole episode. And then I, I realized that that's where the premise of the book comes from. And it all started to kind of make sense, the disdain that you had for your dad at that time. You know, yeah. um, and how yeah. angry you were. And then there was that, that moment where your sister has your, your nephew. Yeah. And she calls him Mika. Yeah. Man, that was such an endearing part of the story, too. Well, you know, my sister and I, you know, she's two years older than me. You know, we were little kids. We were like best of friends. And then, Somewhere along the line, I don't know what happened or if it was just a natural thing, but, you know, I, I sort of like turned on her, you know, and, we, and then we were just, it was like cats and dogs for the rest of our lives, you know, and I think part of it is that she was, she was the good daughter and I was the bad son, you know, and we just, we sort of gravitated to being these archetypes, you know, and then when I was, uh, when I was 25, she had her first kid and she named him after me and it was, uh, you know, you can't, if somebody gives you a muffin, you're like, oh, that's nice. If somebody names a child after you, there's no words for that. Yeah. It's, it's every feeling, you know, every emotion, you know, I mean, I was flattered. I was humbled. I was terrified. I was like, well, is this some fucking manipulative thing or, you know, whatever, like, you know, and I like, you know, I just want to put my family behind me and, you know, and sort of like get on with the rest of my life without them. And, and of course you can't do that. That's ridiculous. So, you know, I, I had uh, forced myself to, you know, I was like, I'm going to take a year off drinking to prove that I'm not an alcoholic. Uh, newsflash folks. If you have to take a year off drinking, it's because you're a fucking alcoholic. <laughs> alcoholics don't need to take a year off. <laughs> or, sorry. People who aren't alcoholics don't need to take a year off. So then, you know, the first time that I went out there to meet, uh, to meet Mecca, you know, I was fucking high on cough syrup and I'd been up, you know, for days like snorting Adderall. And I just, you know, had this, when I sort of held him in my arms, I, I you know, had just had this re- absolutely bizarre vision of sort of humanity of just this sort of, just all the worst, all the worst shit, just all the shit I'd been through and all the shit my friends had been through of like, just getting fucking, just getting beat up or degraded or humiliated or fucking raped or molested by like your boyfriend or, you know, your fucking cousin or your father or, you know, just all the horrible shit that we'd been through. And then this helpless little child who was just totally pure and like, you know, never did anything to anybody. And like, what the fuck was going to happen to him in this world, you know? And, uh, I, I read that passage, uh, you know, at readings and it always, you know, I always just about lose it. I just have to like rope it in at the end. But, and the way that I rope it in is, you know, I said goodbye to Mika when I was leaving on this tour and, uh, he is, 
at least my height. He's probably 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, he just turned 14. He's 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, Good Lord. Size 17 shoes. Jesus. I, 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 I've never seen his dick, but I'm pretty sure it's bigger than mine. You know, like, <laughs> but the kid's doing okay. He's going to be all right, you know? And he's a total sweetheart. You know, I, I gave him a big hug when I was leaving. And I was like, Mecca, I love you. And he said, I love you too. You know, he's such a great kid. And they all are. They're, uh, they all, you know, they all came out fine and like, and they love me and I love them, you know, and they, they, they just sort of accept me. The, you know, the way that I am, I'm the, I'm the weird fucking, I walked out of my camper in the backyard the other day and Micka saw me and he was like, well, 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 if it isn't our mangy old transient uncle, <laughs> and I was like, you little shit, dude, I love you so much. Right? <laughs> that is fucking beautiful, man. It, yeah. it, 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 that's the best part. I mean, I, uh. It always takes me back to where I was just this complete train wreck and, you know, I was doing blow and smoking weed and popping pills every day and I couldn't stop and I ruined my marriage and we were just, we were just about to have a, a baby. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, so my ex-wife now, she, she had, uh, my daughter who's 13 years old now. And I just remember I had just barely a couple months sober. And I'm holding her in my arms and I'm just thinking my, just, ex- <laughs> I'm just in my whole head going, your dad is a fucking drug addict. Like, yeah, you poor thing. Like, this is just like, how did this even happen? And, and I'm, I'm just staring at her and I'm holding her. And yeah, just this sense of like humanity comes over me and the reality that, you know, I could make a difference if I wanted to, you know, yeah. like if I, if I really wanted to make a difference here, I could, and you know, I'm, I'm, you know, 13 years sober, and she's 13 years old. So, you know, kind of gives you an idea of where, where my head That's went. That's awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. That is the greatest gift, man. She, she's spoiled rotten. She is so <laughs> unbelievably spoiled rotten. I, it could, I, if I could give her the entire world, I would. And, you know, a lot of it stems from, from just that, from just how wretched my life was, and how badly I treated her mother. That. It was like I gave her everything I had, you know, and and so yeah. I was I was right there when you were like explaining them. I'm like, God, I'm like, I'm these children that come into our lives are the absolute glue that binds us all together. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, and and there's a good analogy there too because you know in the book, uh, you know, Mika is sort of he's a plot point, right? You know, I mean, he he is that baby, and that's your experiencing uh, your experience of him as a reader or as a listener. But he has his own life now. He has his own narrative. And I'm a, I'm a minor character. I'm a plot <laughs> point in his story. Yeah. You know, it's been a big, you know, a big thing that I've taken on in my sobriety is to, is to push back against the, the narrative that everyone understands of this is how you get sober. This is what sober means. You know, this is, um, it's not one static thing. There's a bunch of different, there are different ways of getting sober. Sober means different things to different people. I still eat mushrooms whenever I get the chance. Um, it's never led to me drinking. Um, and if anything, what it does is, uh, I have a, a weird, fun, intense, depressing, harrowing time. And then I, I wake up the next day and I'm like, Oh shit. And then I have more clarity about what I need to do to move forward. 
a lot of people would say I'm not sober because of that. That's why I speak about it publicly is because, you know, I want people to know about it. You know, so I think that, I don't know, I just want it to be a big open conversation because I think that's what's going to help, uh, help all of us, you know. And that's what we're doing. We're having a conversation about, you know, how you've changed your life in so many dramatic ways, one of which is the one with your father, because that's what really pulled me in, man. I had a two-year battle with my dad where I didn't speak to him for two years. I just hated him, you know, because when my parents divorced, my sister and my dad ganged up against my mom. And my sister started producing all this evidence against my mother to try and discredit her in the divorce. And it was stupid because in the United States, it's 50-50. You know what I mean? Like, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, it doesn't why, matter. Why go through all this ordeal just just because you're, you know, you're sadistic? Right? Well, because and, anger is powerful shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was, well, it did, and it, and it consumed me for a while because, you know, I, I didn't speak to him for, for two years. And and I know that, that you said you hadn't spoken to your dad in the book for, I think it was, God, it was a long time. Was it five years? I it, can't was, it was six or seven. Like when, before, like when you, you saw him for the first time with Mika. Yeah, I... uh I was 25 then, and yeah, I hadn't seen him since I was 18. Yeah, and you were just pissed. Oh, know? yeah. Yeah, so you were, you know, and you did get him to, to, to come forth with some, with some information, though. Well, the, the biggest thing for me was, and this was something that happened when I was 26, and then I sort of filed it away in, in my head for years after that because I didn't know how to deal with it. Um, but it ended up being the sort of like crucial thing, you know, for how to understand my father and how to understand my relationship with him and how to, you know, how to find a way to forgiving him was, uh, when I was 26, I was out on, you know, a ridiculous sort of kamikaze tour and I stayed at his house when he wasn't there and got fucked up and then basically broke into his filing cabinet and, uh, read, uh, the annulment agreement, which was, uh, because he's a Catholic, he had to have the uh, the marriage annulled uh, in order to be able to re- uh, remarry in the Catholic Church. So I went in and read the annulment agreement that he, uh, you know, he didn't want me to read. And in there, I found out that my father had been molested by his mother until he was 14. Oh. And yeah. Yeah. And uh, I had no idea how to deal with that, what that meant how to process that. I mean, I think I was like at that time I was like too angry to, uh, you know, to even think about him as a human being. And then, so it was only like much, much later, you know, after I gotten sober that I sort of had the epiphany that like that experience transformed him and transformed his psyche. I mean, to, you know, to, you know, for a child to be betrayed like that by the one person who is charged first and foremost with their protection it was a horrific betrayal, you know, and both of his parents were alcoholics and drug addicts. And he grew up in an environment and in a world that fortunately I will never understand. My, my dad was not a great father and he was not a great husband. And he's done a lot of shit that, uh, you know, that hurt us and that made us angry. And, uh, you know, and he still does stuff that, that hurts me and makes me angry. But, um, I have such a greater understanding of who he is as a human being and, you know, how his experiences 
for, you know, formed the person that he is that now I'm able to say you have one mom and you have one dad in this world. If you're lucky, uh, that's it. <laughs> There's no do overs, you know? <laughs> and, uh, I love my dad and I'm going to make the most out of that relationship. And I, I'm going to have, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I spent, uh, you know, years and years alienating him because, uh, because he failed me in some big ways and because he wasn't, because he wasn't perfect. My father never hit me. He never degraded me. He never humiliated me. He never threatened me physically. There's some, a lot of shit that I wish that we had done, you know, but it's important to, to see what he did do right. He also made sure that I was never molested. You know, I mean, we, as kids, we were safe. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, and he worked his ass off to, uh, you know, to make sure that we had all that we needed when we were kids. You know, in the process of writing the book and stuff, I interviewed him about a lot and, you know, talked to him more and more sort of about his life as a child and a young man and stuff like that. And I, I really got to see him not as capital D dad, the, you know, like sort of Darth Vader who I was fighting against, but just a guy who married the wrong woman and married her out of a sense of obligation. And before that, he was a young man. And before that, he was, a boy, you know, a boy. And before that, he was a baby. And sort of to see him the same way that I saw Mika as that helpless child. I don't have a big investment in forgiveness. I don't think everybody should be forgiven. I, you know, I just, I don't. I mean, I, you know, the way that I felt for a long time is, you know, somebody fucks you, like you fucking remember it for the rest of your life so they don't do it again. I forgave my father by accident. <laughs> it sounds <laughs> like it <laughs> against my will you know i just came to have so much more you know uh such a greater understanding of who he is as a person that then you know all the resentment and anger that i had uh for him just sort of dried up and i was like ah, i you know i sort of went looking for it one day and i was like oh shit where did i put that you know i i, I couldn't find it um, I just wasn't angry at him anymore. Do you think that after, do you think that if you had not read the annulment letter that you would have had such a strong inclination to forgive him? No. You know, and that's, you know, again, that's one of the reasons why I push against uh, moral absolutism is, you know, is because I did a bad thing, right? I stole from him basically breaking and entering. I, you know, I, I broke into the filing cabinet and stole information that did not belong to me. He never would have told me that. I know, you know, I think he would say the same thing that he would never have told me that. So I did a bad thing and there was a good outcome. And even still, I'm going to take the, the role of rich here. <sighs> even still, because in, in my mind, at least for me, there's that question of, did I find it accidentally or was this just what, what was I was the hand of God? No, I, let's not, I, let's not. Cause, cause people have said, I, I got to tell you, man, in my world, talking about God in that sense is, is it's, it's delicate and you got to walk with on a fine line with that. Yeah. But is there, you know, did something guide you in that direction, man? You've been, you were seeking throughout that book. You were seeking that relief. You were seeking for that relief, man. You were in a tremendous amount of pain, anger, rage, you know. Um, yep. And I have to believe that you reading that, that there was this kind of like, 
Well, wow. that's that's the thing is, you know, I I absolutely see your point that, you know, was something was I predestined to find that or was I mean, it's almost like a Greek myth or something, you know, was there was something guiding my hand, you know, and I would counter with did I secretly love my father very much and want to find something to find a reason or a way to forgive him. And then when I got that information, I was able to say, I'm going to see this. I'm going to experience this. I'm going to interpret this as the key to unlock my relationship with him and to allow myself to forgive him. It's so ambiguous. It's, it's tough. It's tough. And, and, and you know what? I, and can... I'm totally fine with ambiguity. Yeah. You know, yeah, me too. That's me a, too. That's a big thing I'm with okay sobriety, with man, is is you got to just you got to live with not knowing. Yes. You know, would I ever be able to take another drink and be okay? I don't know. I'm not going to fucking take that chance. I'm going to live with the ambiguity, <laughs> you know? I I get it, man, but there's so many like I said that the the life that you led and the the struggles that you went through, they just they just kind of pushed you in directions. They pushed you in directions. Um, yeah. You make conscious decisions to go one way or the other, um, but you know one of the one of the beautiful points or one of the things that touched me too was when you and your dad for the first time after so many years were working together in that studio apartment where you were doing a build out. Yeah, and uh, he asked you how you want the door hung. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. <laughs> the, well. I, I guess I got to give these people yep. the answer. The answer is well hung, <laughs> and that's the thing, man. Is that like I, I? That's the exact sense of humor that I have. And now that like my dad and I sorted out all this shit, we have so much fucking fun together. Man. Yeah, you know, like we love hanging out, and like you know we have a good time. And you know the other thing is that like you know I've worked in bars in New York forever, and I have a lot of good friends. And people are like you know, hey, can I buy you a drink? And they're like, oh. I'm sorry. And I'm like, no, you know what? You buy my dad a drink. He still drinks. He's fine. I've never seen him drunk in my life. He'll have that free drink. Uh, I love that. You know, it's, it's, um, we have, we have a ton of fun together. Now we just had to, you know, I just had to write a fucking book about it and then now everything's okay. (laughs) (laughs) But again, the cathartic experience that we talk about here that, that many people just don't know how to approach it. You spent, you know, 15, 20 years almost killing yourself and actually wishing for death. You know, yeah. there's so many parts in the book where you just, you just wished for death. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, and then I want to talk about this upon a shit because that shit blew my mind when you were talking about it. Cause right after, you know, you have this moment with your dad and you do this build out, you have, you just spiral out of control with this, with this upon a shit. So, you well, know, that's, that's one of the reasons too, I push against the concept, uh, you know, or the idea that like, you know, of outside forces at work, you know, because it wasn't like, uh, things got bad, things got worse, things, things got really terrible. And then there was a big, uh, pivotal point and then things changed. You know, I mean, my, st- I, I ebbed and flowed for years, you know, where it was like, okay, things are getting a little better and no, now they're getting really bad. And they get a little better and they get really bad, you know, and it was just, you know, just oscillating back and forth, you know, and then, you know, finally I just had to fucking make up my damn mind, you know, like, no, I pick, 
I've walked through the door that says worse and worse enough times. I'm going to walk through the door that says better and better. But yeah, Opana was, it was just this uh, super potent painkiller that came into my life at the exact, um, exact wrong time. I was, uh, I was working for this construction company and my back pain was just sort of getting out of control and I'd been drinking for a long time to deal with it and then taking Vicodin and Percocet and whatever. And then, uh, a, a part-time girlfriend, full-time drug supplier, uh, hooked me up with a full prescription of Opana and, uh, I loved it. I loved it right away. I still love it now. Like thinking about it in my mind, you know, that's one thing that where I'm like, you know, I I'll still have dreams about it occasionally and just be like, Oh, I just thought it was the solution until one day I got some morphine. And when I did, did the morphine, I was like, I don't feel anything. Like, this is kind of fucking boring. Wait, if I find morphine boring, <laughs> what have I been doing that makes me not feel this? And then I went and researched Opana and I was like, oh, pharmaceutical heroin. That's the shit that's stronger than Oxycontin. Oh, fuck. You know, and then, uh, yeah, getting off that was a nightmare. How'd you get off that? Fucking just white knuckled it, man. I mean, the, the same way I've gotten off everything else, else in my life is just <laughs> suffering. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, it's a miracle you're still alive because you did these. Yeah, you would just come off the shit, right? Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, just, just fucking... Sometimes the fastest way to do something is just to do it. Oh my God. So today you've got this amazing relationship with, with your family. How's your mother? Oh, my mom's awesome. My mom's always been awesome. I mean, that's the thing is that even when, uh, even when, um, even when, you know, shit was like at its worst, my mom and I were always totally straight with each other. You know, I always loved her. She's always loved me. It's, um, it's weird to have, you know, a relationship with one parent be that good and that uncomplicated and then have my relationship with my father be just fucking off the rails all the time. Well, we get it. <laughs> yeah, 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 I guess you do. There's so many of us that are struggling with something. Uh, we're holding on to something. We're holding yeah. on to a resentment. Um, we're unable to forgive. And what we don't realize is that it's just eating at us it's we're killing ourselves by holding on to these resentments and in many cases we only have half the information like i was you know like in the beginning when i was asking you like i think in our generation we don't have a problem you know writing a book like yours which you know 20 years ago nobody would have written a book like this nobody would have opened themselves up to this kind of um, yeah. intimacy because it is it's it's intimate on levels that are that are almost unheard of but today we can do this and and what if your dad had written a memoir what if you could have picked up a book and gone oh man wow i fucking get it yeah you know what yeah. i mean like how much pain could you have avoided if all of us with all the resentments and anger we have towards our parents we knew the whole story yeah, I do. Yeah. It's going to be a weird, uncomfortable conversation with my uh, with my sister's kids when they read this book. <laughs> so maybe that's why my dad didn't write a memoir. <laughs> and so you, I mean, you've been in situations where you almost were a father, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the uh, 
that, that, and that's been the most sort of terrifying thing for me. Um, you know, in that sort of dark period of my life was, I was like, if I become a father now, then I, I'm just, you know, sort of as a child, it was clear to me that I, you know, that my dad didn't want me. And uh, I was like, well, if I have a kid now, then I'm not going to want him or her. Mm. And then I've just gone and done the exact same thing that my dad has done, except worse. Right. You know? No, absolutely. So do you, do you plan on having kids in the future? I do not. I, um, I love, you know, I love kids. My sister has four kids. I love them to death, but I don't, uh, I don't feel a need to, uh, to have a, a copy of me. Uh, floating around, you know, I, I, I absolutely, I love my sister's kids as if they were my own and people say, oh, it's selfish of you, uh, you know, not to have kids or, you know, you're afraid. I would counter that there's a lot of kids in this world who could use a good uncle, uh, who could use someone who, who cares about them. There's a lot of kids who have parents who aren't necessarily getting parented. I, uh, I do my part. I play my role. I got you. You're uh, Uncle Mishka. Absolutely. <laughs> now, That's... Mishka is not even your real name, right? That's correct. It's a nickname. <laughs> my uh, my birth name is Mikhail, and that's you know it's that's the same name that that Mika has. And uh, this is uh, probably the first example of me being like uh, hard headed. Is that uh, my my grandfather's name was Michael, so I was named Mikhail after him, and then. Uh, they called me Mishka when I was a kid, which is sort of a diminutive of Mikhail. And then my mom's, you know, the first day of school, my mom was like, okay, you're going to school now. Your name is Mikhail. And I was like, nah, nah, nah. My, my, I know how this works. My name's Mishka. Your name's mom. You know, let's not get crazy here. <laughs> so you're so. just changing yourself. Yeah, yeah. When I was like, you know, five. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm Mishka. And I, I have been since then. From five, it was on. Yeah, yeah. All right. So give us your list of books and how our listeners can get a hold of you or, or if they want to go and listen to you while you're on tour, you know, how can they, how can they find your gigs and your dates? I'm Mishka Shabali. I'm the only one. Uh, so it's MishkaShabali.com. I'm at Mishka Shabali on Twitter and Instagram. I'm on Facebook. Like I said, I'll be friends with anyone. <laughs> I, um, and my tour dates are always posted on my website. Um, I try and, you know, sort of get them out on Facebook and Twitter and all that shit as well. Uh, the new book is called, I swear I'll make it up to you. I have six best-selling Kindle singles on Amazon. I have a new record that came out last year called coward's path. Uh, you should buy everything. It's so good. <laughs> Fuck yeah. <laughs> and other than your literature, is there a book that you would recommend that was one of your favorites growing up? Well, growing up took me a long time, so that's that's a long window. <laughs> one of my one of my favorite books is a novel called Jernigan, and it's not an inspirational story. It's um, it's a, a harrowing, incredibly realistic, incredibly detailed account of the damage that uh, alcohol and nihilism. Uh, can do in one person's life. And it's a, it's a, a gripping story. It's funny. It's touching. It's terrifying. Um, you know, I've, I've bought and given away, uh, you know, eight or 10 copies of it. Really? Um, yeah. It's called Jernigan. It's by David Gates. And yeah, if you, uh, 
if you're teetering on the edge of thinking that, oh, I maybe I should quit, I don't want to quit, read that book. The <laughs> 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 fucking come correct after that. <laughs> um, oh, I gotta bounce. I gotta. Uh, I gotta go do laundry, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, give us give us one more question. One more question. All right. All right. All right. If you could give our listeners only one suggestion, what would it be? Let it go. Words to Live By by Mishka Shabali. All right, folks. We have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Give us a Pura Vida, Mishka. Pura Vida. <laughs> go get your laundry done. All right. Cheers, brother. Thanks, man. Later. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.